So I'm going to be reading today a series of passages from Joshua, Judges, follow along with me. Joshua 24, verses 14 through 18 is where we're going to start, the the end of Joshua. This is Joshua speaking to the Israelites, and he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we want and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now I'm going to move to Judges. Immediately after this, Judges, verses 1 and 2. Okay, we have Joshua's farewell speech. And then here in Judges, it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And now remember, Joshua was the great leader, warrior, who brought Israel into the promised land and began the conquering of the promised land. So now Joshua's died and they're inquiring of the Lord. Judges 1, 19, I'm going to read through verse 21. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem. To this day. Now, Judges 1 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalul, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Aphek or of Rahab, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres and Ajalon and in Shaldim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. Now I'm going to move to the end of Judges. Okay, if we could remember that theme that you're hearing. Here we go to the end of Judges, Judges chapter 1, verses 25. Chapter 21, verse 25. This is the closing, closing of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay. So we've been moving through this big picture of the biblical story. 
And the idea that we're, the theme that we're moving towards is Christ, and I've used the term, our once and future king. Okay, recalling this idea that we had last week of the King Arthur story and how when Arthur in that story begins, the death of his father, King Uhtred, right? And Uhtred leaves this sword in the stone for the future king to pull it out. And we remember how God created Adam, which is the Hebrew word for human, right? He created humanity as rulers, as vice rulers, co-rulers that would have dominion to subdue and to be fruitful and multiply. But what did Adam do? He took of the tree with Eve, right? And he succumbed to wanting to rule, but not rule underneath the dominion of God, but rule with his own dominion. And since humans are meant to rule with God, Adam is not able to pull that sword out of the stone. Adam is not the king that we will have. Humanity cannot rule unless they rule in the way that God ordained. So now we wait. We wait for that sword to be pulled out. And today is a day where we remember that waiting. What do we do during the waiting? Gosh, that's a, that's a really good question for us in our lives right now. I mean, we're in this space. We're not just waiting for Christmas. We're not just remembering the birth of Jesus. We're waiting for like, what's gonna go on with COVID here? Like what's gonna happen? We're in this, we're just in this suspended waiting space where we're hesitant to make travel plans. We're hesitant to make plans with work or job changes. We're hesitant to do all kinds of things because we feel like we're waiting. And a huge question for Christians is not just how do I wait through a period like COVID. This is like a training ground for how do I wait for Jesus to come back? How do I wait for the second coming? How do I prepare my life so that I am ready when I meet God at the gates? How? What do, how do I wait well? So we see in the book of Judges, we have a people that are prepared to wait, to be entering the promised land and to have instructions and to just go the slow step-by-step -step slog of getting through this and following the plans of God under the ways of Joshua, who says, as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. And it starts out so well, right? They listen to the Lord. They say, yes, we'll send Judah out. They do it. And then what happens? Verse 25 in Judges 21, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It started so well and it ended so poorly. And I'm not reading, by the way, the in-between from chapter 2 to 21, and I'm not gonna today in our family service. This is the most grisly book of the Bible by far, by far. David Beldman writes about judges and he says this, murder, warfare, state and economic terrorism, child abuse, political assassination, nepotism, perversion of justice, authoritarianism, populism, tribalism, revolution. One might see this list and suppose that was drawn from today's newspaper, from today's headlines and social media news feeds. In fact, the list is just some of the topics and situations that readers encounter on the pages of judges. As I am writing this introduction, troubling stories are breaking from around the world. And I don't think he wrote that commentary last year. How did we, oh, I'm sorry, how did Israel get there when it starts so well? And it's easier than we think. Like all things, this happens one little step at a time. Remember that long passage I just read where maybe your eyes were glazing over and you're going, why is John reading this over and over again? But the Hebrew audience was really used. They almost got into this space with these repeated phrases. There's themes emerging when you have repeated phrases. What kept happening? What kept happening? They did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. That's a sign, that's, that's language for something that we're gonna to get to in just a minute. 
All right, so I wanna lay out in these passages, as we're in this week of, of preparation and expectation, I want to lay out three expectations for us in Advent week, in this Advent week, three expectations from this narrative, okay? And today I wanna to talk about this story with the title of A God in the Days of No King. Okay, we know that Judges is a time of no king. So what does it mean to have a God in the days of no king? Remember Joshua's speech at the beginning. What does he say? He says, now therefore fear the Lord, which is Yahweh. Anytime you see the Lord in the Bible, that's the word Yahweh, the God of Israel. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers that they serve beyond the river and in Egypt. So remember, this is the people of Israel, culturally Hebrew, but totally have, have become um, synthesized, have become part of the fabric of the Egyptian culture as slaves with masters, as people that have lived for hundreds of years, right? And so there's like all these influences that have come into them. While they may be united in a bloodline, they're all over the map, right? Some of them are very, very loyal. We have the stories in Egypt of the Hebrew midwives who, who disagreed with the mandate that was put forth by Pharaoh, would not murder the kids, in fact, lied in the name of God. We talked about that in order to save the people. So we have loyal people here, but we also, we can see here, have people in Israel who have gods that their fathers have served either in Egypt or before then in their ancestry, things that maybe they've hung on to for the sake of nostalgia, for the sake of their family, for the sake of an inherited heirloom, whatever it is, he's telling them, put away the gods that your fathers served. Now, what does that mean? What is that decision? How many of you guys have gone through and tried to purge things from your house as spouses and you really wanna get rid of this thing that your spouse has? And you're just like, you haven't used it. It's been in storage. We lug this thing around from house to house. Like, come on. You know they need to get rid of it, but they can't let go of it. It represents something to them about who they wish they were or who they once were or a person that they lost. And you try as you might, you're not getting rid of it. It's not coming out of their hands until they decide to put it away. Right? We can pray, but the reality is you can say over and over for, for, for somebody you love deeply in your family or who you're married to for something to happen. And it's only when they decide to do it that suddenly the dominoes will fall and it will happen. Here, Joshua is telling the people of Israel, put away that stuff. And can you imagine, just imagine for a moment that he's your wife or husband or dad or mom and he's telling you to do that. You're not gonna put that away until you're ready. But he's saying, discipline your eyes and your ears. I'm telling you, it's gonna be that hard. You have to make hard choices. You have to let stuff go. And then he tells them to serve the Lord. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Now, we read that and we think loyalty. We think, we think, okay, make the Lord my God. But, but think about that word, serve. Serve the Lord. That's what got Adam in trouble in the first place, wasn't it? Service. Doing what he says, even when you don't want to. Doing the dishes and preparing a meal for God. Making your house clean for God. Serving, doing things that don't necessarily help you or that you want to do because they are for the Lord, this is what service is. Actually, when we have a Sunday morning worship service, what does that mean? This is not something that we simply do to come and take up. We are actually all coming to serve the Lord. So he says, serve the Lord, choose service over rule. What Joshua is saying is great leaders serve. And he says, you're going to need to count the cost. But then this is really interesting. Joshua treats his people with honor and dignity. And he says, if you don't want to, 
then say it now. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they serve in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, we are in a pre- time of preparation and waiting on the Lord. We're in a time of service. We're in the time of trying to do what Adam couldn't do, which is to stay under and co-rule with God and take the promised land with him as our leader. But if that's evil to you, if you don't, if you disagree with that, if you're more in love with the things you've met since you got here that are really nice around you and you're not with us for the journey and you want to settle down, which some of the tribes did as they entered the promised land, they come into the promised land and they start to just lose tribes as they go. Because people say, ah, we like it here. There's good pastures for our sheep. Our families are happy. Our our kids are saying, why do you want to go fight the battle? We've got stuff here. We came here to get land and we've got it. Why do we need to go serve the Lord? He says, this is what Joshua is saying as a great leader. He's saying, just take ownership over your choices. Treat it with the gravity it deserves. Likewise, we're going to find, he's saying, own the consequences of your sin. Because Joshua is prefiguring the judgment that comes to all of us, which is that Jesus will account. God will account for our choices. Our choices do matter. We are in control of our own actions. Who we choose to serve in this life absolutely, completely matters. And then Joshua leads, regardless if anyone's going to follow him. He is not doing, he's not taking a consensus. They're not taking a vote. They're not circling the wagons and saying, what do we all want to do? Joshua is saying, as for me and my house, we're serving God. Just Declarative statement, this is what we are doing. Now you decide what you want to do. And just stick with your decision, please. Just please, please commit. And here we see what what primes up the theme for the whole story is good leaders don't compromise to find and keep followers. Good leaders don't compromise to find and keep followers. They attract followers because of their conviction and the only conviction that's truly worth having in this life to attract followers to the most important one let's put it that way the one that should be above everything else is to serve the lord just boils it down to the most basic aspects of life this is what great leaders are doing in this world is they are saying as for me and my house we will serve the lord if that's attractive to you we want you If you don't want what we want, don't get in here and corrupt the whole mess. You've got other choices. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so it starts so well, doesn't it? Israel says, oh, okay. Well, far be it from us who could forsake God. You're the guy, Joshua. We follow you. Whatever you say, we're good. You got us in here. You're a great warrior. You've done everything right. Moses appointed the right guy for us. We got your back. Okay? Then what happens? And this is our first expectation. What happens? Judges 1. After the death of Joshua. Okay? Super important. Our first expectation is though there is a permanent plan that we are on in our life, though there is a permanent plan to serve the Lord, it is with an impermanent community. Our church really needs to hear this. There is a permanent plan for your life wherever you go. But expect that it is with an impermanent community. It is not sinful for Joshua to die. Joshua didn't do anything wrong to die. Okay? He's not struck down by God. It just, he just dies. 
And the people of Israel start off going, all right, remember what Joshua said, right? Basically take the hill, right? We're gonna do it. And so they go up and they have these new horizons given to them and they've committed to them and they even have provision and command by God. But they don't have Joshua. Look, we often think we'll be just fine with changes until we're not, right? We often think we'll just be just fine without our dad anymore, without our mom when they're on their deathbed until we're not. We often think we'll be just fine without the girlfriend or the boyfriend until we're not. We think we'll be just fine when so-and-so goes on a work trip until we're not. Like, we think we'll be just fine doing the stay-at-home thing, getting the kids to school until we're not. We, we get started so well. But because we have this expectation, it tells us something about Christian love. First, it tells us, right, that people come and go. That's to be expected. You can't necessarily get upset for people for coming and going. Okay? God didn't promise you that you would have these people to do your life with for the whole of your life. He promised you that he would give you this mission and he would bring and provide the people that he needs you to have to get that job done when and where he's going to do it. And so that tells us that Christian love is prepared to continue even when it's one directional. Even when it's one directional. What do I mean by that? Imagine these 12 tribal leaders, right, of each of the different families under Joshua, okay? Imagine how used they are to Joshua's affirmation, right? How much going and doing that battle and, man, we're, we're fighting with Joshua and we come back and he hits us on the back and he goes, man, you guys, you killed it. That was awesome. You guys are great. I love you guys. I want to do this thing with all of you. Okay, imagine how much the next time they go out to battle, they're going out to battle because when they get back, Joshua's there to just give them the big hug and be like, you are the best. We rock. This is awesome. God is on fire today. We're going to go and we're going to do this. And see how it shifts. Now, what are we living for? We're living for the affirmation of the people we're doing the work with, aren't we? And so we can love and we can love and we can love when we can come back to those people and they love us back. And so what we do is we start to build a system where we're not ruling under the divine rule anymore. We've all just clustered over here to rule together. We don't actually need God to do that. We're not waiting on his provision. We're not living by his love. We're living by each other's love and we're working out of each other's provision. And here's when you know that that's what's happening. When Joshua dies, when Joshua leaves, then you go, I can't do it anymore. I just love and I love and I love and nobody loves me back. I do dishes and I do dishes and I do dishes and nobody's thankful. I work and I work and I work and I come home and what? To this, right? You're looking for the affirmation from somebody else, from something else, from a boss, from a spouse, from whatever, to keep going. And when it doesn't come to you, you go, I don't think I can do it anymore. I don't think people keep leaving. I just can't do this anymore. Nobody's thankful. I just can't do this anymore. So as Christians, we have to listen carefully. We're not always going to be living in one directional love, but we need to get comfortable with channeling the love we receive from Jesus outward, knowing that it won't come back to us, right? It's not that we're not getting loved. Listen to me really carefully. You're in a love loop. We've talked about this all the time. You're in that Trinitarian love loop. But when you're sending it out, there's no feedback loop that's guaranteed to come back to you. That's not Christian love. That's the way the world loves. Christian love is just sending it out. Just get it out everywhere. That's Christian love. So you should expect in some ways that in Christian love, there is no guarantee. It's a grace when it comes back. Man, like I told you, I could live off a compliment for a week. It's a grace, but you can't rely on it. You can't rely on it. 
So the reason in our culture and in the church of why marriages are sour and relationships are sour and churches are sour is because we've been used to and we think it's working when there's the two directional love. And if there isn't, then we're not doing it right. We're not in the right place. We're not with the right people. Right? And what is the problem with the end of the book of Judges? What happens by the end? What is different about Israel than anyone else they're living with by the end of Judges? Is there anything different? What does it say? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They look no different than any of the Canaanites, the whatever, whatever they're around. They're just another ite among the ites, right? Everybody looks at them and they go, oh, they just have their God too. But we're all in this, right? It's, it's strongest man wins kind of scenario. Like they're no different than anyone else. They operate the same way. They might proclaim, they might walk a big game. They might say, we have the one true God. But when it comes down to it, they act the same way in fights. They act with the same tribalism. They have the same kind of vengeance. All of these things show up in Judges as you read it. And you realize Israel is acting just like everybody else. And of course, that's what happens to us today when we lose track of the expectations that we need to have and the command and the permanent plan that we're giving. Serve the Lord. Permanent plan. Joshua will die. That's okay. Impermanent community. Keep going. So we aren't people learning faith and learning to expect we aren't people that are unsurprised with difficulty unless we can get this through our heads in this story of this is how it works. Instead, in the church, what we are more and more prone to is being junkies for comfort and success, wanting to have that be for the leaders, wanting that to be a great worship service, and being like, yeah, we hit the ball out of the park. Right. Or for the people coming to live and be in the body saying, oh, man, I just they really liked my dress today. They really liked the food that I made. They, man, that feels so good. I love coming here. The people here love me. Searching for comfort. I'm searching. I'm I'm literally addicted to blessings and I'm coming because I want to get blessed by other people. And if I don't get blessed by other people, I think that I haven't been blessed by God. I come to a worship service and I don't think I've been blessed by God because so-and-so is unhappy with me. And so we're always on the hunt for the next fix of love. And this is consumerism. And this is when the church begins to look like everybody else. And it happens with religious people as much as it happens with non-religious people. And so how do they get there? When they don't expect the permanent plan with an impermanent community, the way that that begins to unravel is what we read in this long string from Judges 1, 9, 1, 19 through 35, with the key phrase in this being what? But they could not, they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. I'm not going to go into the, the violent holy war conflict side of this right now. I'm going to use this simply as an illustration that I think is really, really clear in the paradigm we've created in the, in the, in the lens that we put on here, which is what is happening here. I didn't read the text, but there is a command from God to go in and just take it all. Don't, don't leave anybody. Don't, don't coexist with anyone in this promise. And you have to clear it. You have to clear it out completely. So first of all, they're disobeying God. But they're doing it and they think it's a rational plan. You can see this just by the first, the first phrase here in verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Now, that's, these are lowercase h's in here. Not a language scholar, but that's not referring to God. Judah took possession. 
of the hill country and Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. Why? They've got chariots of iron. What do you think we are? Like, we're not set up for that. We can't do that. So God must not want us to just take that all, you know? So let's make some deals. Let's make some alliances and like, let's just kind of settle in and get a spot in here. What begins to happen? What do we call this? Spiritually, what do we call this when we do this in our lives? We call this compromise, right? Compromise. Now in business, there's lots of places where we work out compromise. We teach kids to compromise. Compromise is a good thing to us, right? Not, not in the Bible. Not when you're compromising with other gods. This is, this is a different kind of compromise. This is saying, I've let go of my beliefs because they just don't work in the world. I've let go of the highest priorities of my life because I can't see how it will deliver the promise I thought that it was going to deliver. I can't see it. They have chariots of iron and I cannot see how we can defeat that. And so we're going to stop, make a truce, make a deal, and we're just going to, to work it out. We call this, when we see chariots of iron in our life, when we see those things we can't possibly handle, we can't overcome, our faith won't work against that. We call it reevaluation. We sanctify our sin with language and we say, no, I'm just reevaluating. Just reevaluating because look, it's not adding up. And we can tell we are compromising when we reevaluate. This is how you distinguish if that reevaluating really is a sinful reevaluation. We can tell if we are sinfully reevaluating if we are giving up in the, on the plan in our heart. That's the kind of reevaluation Joshua's warning Israel against. As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. Says if your reevaluation because there's an impermanent community is that the plan is not permanent. If that, if that is what you're doing, if the impermanent community, if the overwhelming odds are making you reevaluate the plan, you're sinning. And if you're using language or getting people around you to rally and say, "Nah, I think like." I just think we're off base in our belief system and we need to steer it over here. And you're giving up on service to the Lord. If you need to be bigger, you can't handle serving, you can't handle that. And you're reevaluating for that reason. This text is warning you. The plan, the plan that God gives is not to find love from somewhere or someone else when you can't feel it from God. That is the heart that God is after. He wants to say, look, the idols, the idols are like 10 steps down the road. When you actually start to do the thing, it started way earlier than that in your heart. And the heart was God doesn't love me, so I need to find someone or something that will. I'm miserable because I'm not loved and I'm tired of waiting. So that brings us to the second thing we need to expect. In, in the text, it's battles. In Christian language, it's trials. You know, I'm expecting trials. Neither of those words work for me. Neither, I, I just write both of those off. I'm not in battles, not fighting wars. Trials, okay, but that, that makes me sound like a victim, right? Oh, I'm just going through such big trials. I'm going to call this kitchen work, okay? We should expect kitchen work. Now, let me, let me hear, hear what I'm saying. This is not a derogatory statement about working in a kitchen, okay? There's a, there's a, there's a myth that I've been reading lately called Iron John, okay? In Iron John, there's a story I, I don't know if it's brothers, grandma, where it comes from, but there's a story about a young boy who grows up in a, in a 
home with parents and a castle, and a wild man is in a cage. The story progresses. He manages to find a key. He lets the wild man out, and the wild man takes him out into the woods in the wilderness. The boy's riding with the wild man, and he's on an adventure of his life. He's young. He comes to a pool, and the wild man says, stay at the pool. I'm going to go. I'll be back. The boy stares over the pool at himself, and and a hair drops out, and it turns to gold. He picks the golden hair up, and he's just amazed. The wild man comes back, and he goes, don't do that ever again. He says, but I'm going to leave again. I'll come right back. And, of course, the little boy sticks his finger in and it turns to gold. He's just mesmerized. And the wild man says, I told you not to do it again, but it's okay. You can't be by the pool anymore, but I'll come back to you one day. And so the boy is in exile from the pool and he goes to a castle and he goes to this castle and he looks up to the tower and he he goes, I want to be up there. So he goes to the bottom of the castle and he gets work as a kitchen boy, right? Working in the ashes, doing the work. And then the king invites him up to the tower and he goes up to the tower, but the king sees him and refuses an audience with him. And the boy must go back to do kitchen work in the ashes, okay? Now, why am I telling this story? I'm telling it because it has real relevance, especially if you're in my life stage. I think this has a lot of relevance, 20s, 30s. I'm not sure how it works when you're older, okay? But the point of this story as it develops is a major, major sin, a major, major temptation is to covet, right? See it in the Israelites in this story. They are coveting the people that are already established and the ways of life that they already have. They're resenting that they're always nomadic on the the move. They're resenting that they're always the underdog fighting against the big guys. They're resenting that their God doesn't set them up in the way maybe other cultures set them up. They have to rely on God to come in and deliver them. They want to deliver themselves. Well, how does that match up with this other story, right? What is the temptation, especially, I'll just talk as a male that was in his 20s, when you touch your finger into gold and you go, I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I can do amazing things. And you want the audience with the king. You just want to go straight up the elevator to the top and you just expect you'll be welcomed in and now you're royalty and the world will be yours. And what do we have to do? Kitchen work. Cooking, scrubbing, serving, not eating the food that you're making, the feasts. You're eating in the back room. The feasts are for everybody else. And what do we do? It totally shuts us down. Because we're not expecting the battles. We're not expecting the trials. We're not expecting kitchen work. But that is our training ground. And I'm saying this, I'm thinking of Ellen, maybe, maybe kitchen work doesn't work for you, you like baking. But for a, what he, you get the idea that I'm saying. The idea is the drudgery of the day to day. We're greater than this, we're made for greater things. Well, look at the Advent story. We know we're made for greater things. That's true. The point is, you can't handle the greater things until we learn to serve the Lord, like Joshua does. When everybody else gets disgruntled, like Moses does, when everyone else gets disgruntled and says, let's just go back to Egypt. So much better there. Sure, they weren't the nicest to us, but we ate. We ate pretty well. I think really what we need right now is just to eat well. Let's just give up on the big ideas. Let's give up on this faith thing that we can't see. And let's just make a life for ourselves. But what is real courage then? What is real courage from the point of view of Joshua? Joshua's real courage as a leader isn't that he's a great warlord. Joshua's real courage, his deep courage, the thing that requires the most bravery, is to keep and do the law always. I'll tell you, that takes way more courage 
than fighting a glorious battle and living in fame or dying in glory. Not being noticed and still serving the Lord takes way more courage than going down in flames. It's the kitchen work. And that's where the character formation happens. The real courage is an obedience in spite of all trials. And that's what Joshua is preparing them for. He's saying, get out now if you're not ready. We're going in. And if you don't serve the Lord, you will give up. What we also see, though, is that this is a failure of community. Now, what do I mean by this? This is not one person giving up, right? If, if you had a bunch of people in the ranks say, man, it's really nice out there, and the leader says, remember, we're taking the hill. Remember, God is providing for us. Okay, you gotta go get despondent for a minute, run out of the woods and scream for a while. When you come back, remember, we're gonna go take the hill, and God is with us, and he's got us, and let me give you a big hug and remind you how much he cares for us. And let me walk through, through in your life how he has cared for you. And let me tell you how he's convicting me. And let me tell you where I believe he will show up. And then let's go. But what you see here is a failure of community. When the community becomes despondent, when the people in the room all begin to go, I, I, don't, I don't think this is the plan, actually. I actually think that if we want to make a life for ourselves, we should reevaluate what Joshua was talking about. Maybe, maybe let's just reevaluate the timeline, right? Maybe he just wanted us to like hang out in here and God's gonna show up in a little bit. Um, and maybe it's not so bad if we just intermarry a little bit because you know we gotta, we gotta make a life for ourselves. Maybe it's not so bad, you see? And they start to compromise because they're giving up on some level of faith. They're trusting what they can see. And that is not faith. Faith is not trusting what you can see is gonna work out or how the numbers will add up or how the timeline will work. And so what happens in Judges 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a warning, and the warning is that everyone, when they begin to give up on the permanent plan because of the impermanent community, because of the kitchen work, they will form a new plan. They will decide there's a new meaning to life. They will decide that life is actually about this thing where I am king. Life is actually about this path where I will be great. My life is actually about pursuing this goal where I will be phenomenal. Just you wait. I'm going there now. It splits up communities. It splits up marriages. It splits up churches. It splits up cities. It splits up nations. Because everybody says, I know what is right in my own eyes. What you see in the book of Judges is that as the tribalism begins, as the compromise begins, new leaders start up in fits and starts and they, they blaze out in glory. But pretty soon, everybody just turns in on themselves. The Canaanites don't even have to do anything. The Philistines don't even have to. That by the end of Judges, tribes of Israel are warring against themselves in civil war. They're just eating themselves alive. That's how we know we've lost the plot. And if I could say on a macro level, the church is eating itself alive right now. It's absolutely eating itself alive. And the only thing we can do, we can't stop all of that. We just do what Joshua says. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Now there is, we'll wait to cohort to unpack stuff like that. So there's so much to think about on what that means. 
But here's the last piece. And here's where the people that splinter out and begin to war against each other have to check their hearts, where I have to check my heart when I give up in despair and despondency because I think the plan is an impermanent plan and I think the kitchen work is too low and too small for me. I have to remember that the third expectation must be locked in and that is expect favor. Expect favor from the Lord. Expect goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Because if I don't expect that, the other two, I will not be able to maintain. I will not be able to maintain the permanent plan and the expectation. And I will not be able to maintain the day-to-day of my life if I don't expect that God's favor is on its way. In fact, it's here right now as I'm laying awake in bed, not able to sleep. I feel his favor on me as I recite the Psalms to myself. He has favor for me. He cares about me. He loves me. I know it. It is true. You can't take that away from me, Satan. Get away from me. So how do we move forward with an expectation of favor? Well, if you read, I'm learning to read the Bible, big word, what they call canonically. Just means you read it through and you see how the story builds over time. It's actually a profoundly different way of reading it than just jumping all over the place. And you go, how does this develop? How do these things develop? Why is the book of Ruth right after the book of Judges? But you turn the page from that day when there was no kings. And it says in the time of the Judges, and we get this beautiful little story, this beautiful little tale, tightly woven with people of literally no significance whatsoever, we would think. Ruth who just married an Israelite that, by the way, wasn't even really on the right track to begin with. Out in Moab, doing what they were doing in Judges a little bit, saying, ah, famine here. I'm just going to go here where there's food and make a life for myself. But God's spirit is with Ruth. And when when, when these brothers and sons of Naomi die and Ruth is stuck with her mother-in-law, one would think, man, that's awkward. And she commits and she says, I'm with you. You're my lifeline. And I'm, I love your God. And I want to know your God. And I feel like he has a love for his people. And what does Ruth do when she comes back in to Bethlehem? When she comes back into the space of Israel, when the food is back? Ruth 2, verses 2 and 3 She goes into a field and she says, I will work in the field. Let me just read it here. She says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Verse three, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who is in the clan of Elimelech. Those who know the story knows how it plays out. Ruth goes, I'm just going to do kitchen work until God's favor shows up for me. That is a stubborn, courageous leader, that woman. I am going to show up and work until I'm blessed by you, God. I'm going to contend for your favor. I'm going to get in there and keep at it with a stubborn love for you. I'm going to go one directional with my love. And I'm just going to love Naomi until I find your favor. Show up for me, God. And she's going to have to pray that kind of prayer show up for me. And she's going to have to expect it to happen and yearn for it and live for it and be fueled by it every single day. If she wants to keep going in this thing called following the Lord. But fortunately, she comes across a man who feels the same way about his life and who has spent his time doing the kitchen work and who has built a business and a life 
in service to the Lord. And because it's a life in service to the Lord, he can be one directional with his love. And so when Boaz finds Ruth gleaning in the field and sees the heart she has for the Lord, he blesses her. And you begin to see how the community does build itself up. But Ruth does not fall in love with Boaz because of Boaz. She falls in love with Boaz because of God. And Boaz does not love Ruth because of Ruth. It does not say he saw a woman and she was so beautiful he just couldn't take her eyes off her. And he, you know, it doesn't go that route. He had pity on her. He saw that she had a great need and he realized as the story plays out that it is his role in the culture of that time to be her redeemer. That he has an obligation out of his love for God to care for her in a way that is completely life altering. This is not like small potatoes thinking. This is like Boaz had a view of his life that said, I'm gonna be a great manager of fields. And I'm going to, I don't know, it doesn't talk about anything with Boaz's love life. Maybe he just assumed he would be a bachelor, right? I don't know, he has a life plan laid out for himself. And Ruth comes, and that is the hand of God. And Boaz says, I serve the Lord. I am know exactly what I need to do today, so I will put one step in front of the other. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and my life will play out the way God dictates it instead of the way I had fantasized about it, where I go up the elevator to the top of the tower, get the audience with the king, and everybody loves me for the rest of my life. I don't know who needs to hear this in the room. But these are things I need to hear. I'll just close with this. Um, this week was a, a crazy week. And this sermon just literally came out in about an hour on Friday. Um, because I lived this sermon this week. Because I, I had to... I had to process this without even knowing what I was preaching or what text I was going to preach on and knowing how relevant it would be. I had to recite Psalms in the middle of the night. And I got to Friday morning and I told Megan, I said, I am going to fast until God shows up. Now, I don't know if that was the right move or not. Megan said I might have been testing the Lord. I call it contending for faith, but maybe I'm sanctifying my sin. <laughs> I said, I gotta see his favor. I'm gonna not eat until I see his favor. Now it's maybe melodramatic, I'm not recommending other people do this, okay? I'm a, yeah, Beth smiled because she knows. <clears throat> but there is something strangely empowering about the feeling of saying, God, I'm putting myself at your mercy and I'm watching for you, I'm waiting for you to show up. So I come down with Arthur to clean the building on Friday and we pull up just like we would any other Friday where I come down and open it up for him to clean. And there's a, a guy on the steps of the building just hanging out. Of course, I was not in the greatest mood and I wanted to just be like, I just want to get my day done and get home and, you know. And I go, hey, how's it going? And he introduced himself and told me his name and super nice guy and told me kind of his story. And I came in and I, I don't know, did I want to do this? It's a little bit felt like kitchen work, right? Okay, here I am. My role as a person, this pastor in this building, is for this building to a place for the poor and the needy to come and eat, right? So I have a job. So I got to write a sermon that needs to be preached on Sunday. And here's this guy, Don. And I know what I need to do right now. So I'm just going to do it. And like push out of my head the fact that I need to preach this sermon and get it written and I don't have time and I'm behind and I just let it all go. I said, Jesus knows exactly what I need to do right now. And if I don't care for Don, that is a terrible witness for the church, right? So I corner, I do this a lot with myself. I corner myself, right? So I go, okay, now I've got to do it. But that's not what God wants. He doesn't want me to do it because I'm dreading how it will be or in fear. So he got me there and I'm looking at Don and I'm talking with Don and Realizing he needs to eat, so I run down, get him some food at QFC, bring that back. Realize that I probably should have thought this through better and he needs other stuff, so I say, hey, do you want to take a shower? 
I go, hey, we got a shower. Let's take a shower. Nope, no shower curtain on the shower. So I run back down to Ace, get a shower curtain. Doesn't quite work. Run back down to Ace, get another shower curtain. Right? He takes a shower. The, the, the bathroom fills up with water because the curtain didn't stop the water. Uh, he doesn't have a towel. Run back down to Ace, get a towel. <laughs> you guys who know me are knowing this totally makes sense for how I do everything. And I'm going, God, I feel like the worst pastor who's taking care of the poor ever. Right? I feel like a total unprepared idiot. Um, but also, God, I see that you have shown up and you have brought Dawn and you're giving me kitchen work and it's good work. And it's the work the church has to do and it's the work you want me to do. So I'm going to do it today. <laughs> and Don was a great guy. We had a great conversation and we finally kind of get ready to go. And I say, he goes, hey, I want to respect your schedule. I can take off. So I wish him well, squeeze out his socks that were soaking wet from the, the bathroom. And he goes, okay, I'm good to go. And I let him out the back door and he goes, you changed the world today. And I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> like this life is so weird. You changed the world today. And in a way, isn't Don right? I mean, isn't that what changes the world? And I know that this is, some people are going, oh, I'm going to write this off, right? But I see this in the text. I see this kind of courageous bravery in the text. And I'm not telling you that story to tell you how good I was. I'm telling you that story to tell, tell you that God, by all measures, the mood I was in that morning, God should have picked somebody else to do that job. And he says, I am going to love you and show up for you. And then the sermon spilled out in an hour. And I said, I think God showed up. Megan, by the way, told me that God showed up after Don arrived. And I didn't believe her. I said, it's not enough, right? It's not enough. I know what I need. And I need this to be done. But God showed up and he showered his blessings in a way that was impossible for me to ignore. And this is the result of what I want to tell you guys, going long again, is that we often rush to find God's favor, but he wants us in expectation of it, contending for it, patient for it. If God didn't show up on Friday, that is not permission for me to abandon my post. It's not. It's just simply not permission. We are all called to act like Joshua in this time of expectation and say, for me and myself, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm just going to part by reading um, this text, very fitting Christmas text, because if you know the story of Boaz, you know where the road from Boaz leads. That's to David, who would be the king, who would fall, who would fail who would say, God has shown me great favor, and then would go into the depths of despair, reading Psalms to himself probably in the middle of the night. That sounds like David. And then cheating and going after, just like complete mess of the guy. And out of that would come Jesus Christ in the house of David. I'm just going to read Isaiah 11, verse 1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. We have that in the death of Jesus. We're on the other side of this prophecy and we know and we are assured of his love for us. Even in the darkest times, we are going to be with him in glory. Let's pray. God, I just pray... um, in this huddle before we go out to the week, God, that you would fill each of us with your spirit so that we have the capacity for one directional love in a time of waiting. That as sure as Jesus showed up to fulfill the prophecies in these people's time of waiting, he will return again for us in this time of waiting. God, we adore you. We ask for you to give us the tenacity to stick with the plan this week, to get us to one more huddle next week. Provide for us, show your favor to us. If necessary, help us contend with you to see it, to wrestle with the angel until he blesses us. Jesus' name, amen.